Victim Impact is a podcast series investigating the many layers of a legendary Vancouver area fraud scheme. Samji was frankly just some sociopath. With this person here, I'm getting these rates returned. He's gifted. A pirate night one night where everybody was to dress up as a pirate. If you see videos of it, it's like a cult. It's like a, a religious revival. Rashida Samji scammed over 200 people in a Ponzi scheme involving nearly $120 million. It was exposed in 2012. Now, six years later, criminal and civil proceedings still trudge exhaustingly forward. But many of the most interesting, most mysterious angles haven't been heard in court or investigated thoroughly in the media. So there's more to the story. There's also more to this project than just telling the story. He's an outstanding member of the community. These are people that go to a financial advisor for exactly the kind of advice that he provided, and they got hosed. And so what happens is you're truly feeding a monster. Think of these things as re reverse art theater. What we've discovered so far is that Ponzi schemes survive, now nearly a century after they began because there's just so much opportunity and only minimal oversight or regulation in the investment industry and so few consequences for white-collar criminals. But Ponzi schemes also survive out of secrecy, shame, embarrassment, legal convention, non-disclosure rituals, diminishing press coverage, public relations fears. It all adds to the silence. We're dedicated to opening this story up, exposing secrets, fighting for a little bit of transparency. We'll go deep into the fallout for the victims, follow the money, try to crack the mystery at the heart of the case. I'm Tim Carlson, the researcher and writer of the podcast, and a forthcoming stage play based on it. I'm a playwright, theater producer, and journalist in Vancouver. I run a company called Theater Conspiracy, this is Victim Impact. Lorne Mallon got ripped off big time in Rashida Samji's Ponzi scheme. He trusts others in the room, but certainly not me or most anyone outside of it. I think that um, it's all about uh, agenda. So um, we've had dealings with um, uh, people such as yourself, with uh, CBC, and we've dealt with uh, radio and, sure. and reporters and stuff. And um, everybody's got an agenda. You kind of laid yours out in the very beginning. And as soon as I heard it, uh, I thought, that's not really our agenda. So I don't know how those two are going to kind of fit together. I mean, right off mm -hmm. the bat, I kind of see that as, a, as something where we might be talking at cross purposes. You may not get what you want. We, we, mm -hmm. We've had experience in the past of not getting what we wanted. Understatement. 
Lorne Mellon will unload on the minutiae of this failure in detail and in no uncertain terms. The others in the room are a subgroup of Samji victims. They were all drawn in through a banker that they trusted. They're mainly retirees. They've lost their life savings, or even their homes as well. And lost trust in most everything except for each other. Matters of trust, how they were screwed individually, were drawn together through desperation, and became determined to fight a system that they believed is stacked against them. These are the through lines of our story. I wouldn't blame any of these people for thinking I'm just another hustler, wanting another piece of them. It's April 2016. These people have been dealing with the fallout of Samji's scam since it was busted almost four years earlier. While Lorne was suspicious of my agenda in doing this story, Christine Dow did trust me because of an earlier meeting, and she relayed that to the rest of the people in the room. You know what I found, um, I've yeah. spoken to these people before, um, that actually for me there was a, a, like a bit of healing, you know, it was really yeah, yeah. strange because I'm not talking to a lawyer, but I have to make my case count, and I'm not talking to this person, I'm, I was just sort of telling my story, but not where it mattered, mm -hmm. like the, I, I didn't need to have any judgment, I didn't, you know, I was, and so... When I went home with Dave, I sort of felt a little lighter about what had happened to me yeah, anyways. When she says, these people, Christine is referring to myself and Kathleen Flaherty. Kathleen's a partner in developing this podcast, and also the stage play based on it. She's a former CBC radio producer, a research junkie, who usually mainlines podcasts through a set of headphones clamped to her head. But right now, she has a recorder out and jumps in with a blunt question for the group. So has your entire worldview changed? For Lorne, the experience destroyed his trust in every institution that touched the case. If you need a theme for your play, okay, my suggestion would be is that, uh, and, and you're talking about Ponzi schemes, my suggestion would be is that you get involved in a Ponzi scheme, and the victim becomes a, the person becomes a victim becomes a loser. Okay. Yeah. Step one. Yeah. Then you get involved in the legal system, and the victim again becomes a loser. Becomes a loser. Right. The theme for your play is there's no win in this. Mm -hmm. It's lose, lose, lose all the way through. Okay. I've I've lived this for quite a few years now, but the overriding theme is that no matter what Ponzi scheme you're in, no matter where you are in this country, if you get caught in the first situation where you're, you lose, get ready to keep on losing. All the way through, everybody wants a piece of you. Kathleen and I first met Lauren, Christine, and Dave Peters in the hallway of a Vancouver court, prior to one of the interminable series of appearances Samji has made since 2012. It would be far from the last. 
Along with Crown Prosecutor Kevin Marks and others involved, they sip coffee and discuss the case loudly. Samji and her lawyers sat on a bench within earshot. It all seemed so casual. The three of them, Lauren, Christine, and Dave, have attended nearly every court proceeding and civil suit meeting involved in the case. They've become experts. Lorne once said to me that he didn't know more about the law than the lawyers, or more about the money trail than the accountants, but he did know more about the entire story than anyone, except for maybe Samji herself. On March 3, 1882, Carlo Ponzi was born to Oracete Ponzi and Amida Ponzi. In a middle-class family, he studied at the University of Roma Sapienza, and in November of... The arrest of Wall Street legend Bernard Madoff has clients panic that their wealth may be gone. It's hard to believe that somebody so successful, who people trusted for years, was so greedy and so corrupt to steal their money. According to civil and criminal complaints, Madoff confessed he had been cheating investors for years, and he estimated his total losses from the fraud may have been $50 billion. According to the criminal complaint... So what is a Ponzi scheme? Think of it as a tight-knit community in the sprawling metropolis of fraud. The criminals work in close circles of family, ethnic and religious affiliations, business associates, where trust is supposedly built in. Carlo Ponzi, the eponymous fraud innovator of the 1920s, drew investors in from all strata of Boston society. And reigning champ, Bernie Madoff, suckered one-percenters in worldwide, a broad swath of middle America, as well as seducing his New York Jewish community in the two decades before his 2008 arrest. But the more common thing is an even tighter circle of people with close affinity. A religious group. An ethnic community. I chose the Samji case to focus on for this project because it's local and I could follow it through the courts. It's a prototypical Ponzi scheme, in some ways. I've studied 15 Ponzi schemes from across Canada that have been prosecuted in the past decade. Former investment advisor Ian Thau has pleaded guilty to 20 counts of fraud. Wazen Tang says he's no ordinary investment manager. It was a Ponzi scheme that ran more than two decades. How did Earl Jones do it and get away with it for so long? In Toronto, Wijin Tang, the self-styled Chinese Warren Buffett, drew over 50 million from largely Chinese investors in the city as well as in the U.S. and China. This is pretty typical, says Sergeant Kurt Bedford, who was the lead RCMP investigator in the Samji case. Bedford works in the RCMP's financial crime unit. I met the jocular cop back in December 2016 in the reception area of the BC Securities Commission, where he frequently attends hearings and gives testimony. Bedford couldn't talk about the Samji case in specifics, since it was still under appeal. So I asked him what other Ponzi schemes he'd investigated, and he talked about a recent case in Vancouver's Korean community. 
Uh, what's his name and business? Bedford couldn't say, even though anyone can easily Google the press coverage. The guy's name is Sun Won Sean Kim. He's in jail in South Korea. Um, I could just comment on what he did for a living and the fact that he was associated to an ethnic group. We call it affinity fraud. He had these associations. So because of that, um, there was a trust. And the trust is quite often what happens in these Ponzi schemes that people will, uh, you know, they'll trust him. Um, they won't even think twice. Um, he's a, a reputable person in this community. And because of all of these reasons, people did not doubt um, the legitimacy of his investments. Even though you and I are sitting here going, how could anybody promise a guaranteed rate of return of 40%? Can you just talk a little bit more about those common themes of affinity fraud? So it was South Korea, the South Korean community is what it was. And it was a South Korean a church. Um, uh, it was uh, within his ethnic group. He was uh, actually had, was part of a church, a businessmen's association group. Um, and when you say common themes, it's interesting in, in Ponzi schemes, because Ponzi schemes is, is truly defined as a, a fraudulent investment where new capital is brought in from new investors to pay off the earlier investors. And this is kind of the, uh, the basis of what Ponzi schemes are. So you have early investors who, in fact, are getting these outrageous rates of return in the first in the case I was just talking about, you know, plus or minus 40 percent. So they're, in fact, getting these rates of return. So what's going to happen is they're going to tell their friends um, within the community that, you know what, you got to invest with this uh, with this person here. I'm getting these rates of return. He's gifted, as I mentioned. He's uh, he's an outstanding member of the community. So in an economic uh, and financial era that we live in where GICs are paying 2 3% rate of return, um, who isn't going to jump on that bandwagon? Potentially, right? And so what happens is, is the operator then is able to pay these rates return for a certain amount of time because new capital keeps coming in, but you're truly feeding a, feeding a monster. And what happens is you need more and more capital to come in to pay off the earlier investors, and there's no way you can keep feeding that machine forever. And what happens is it eventually just collapses upon itself. And this is what happens with with uh, all Ponzi schemes. You know, uh, Bernie Madoff, uh, even Earl Jones back east. These are major Ponzi schemes, and they can't just keep feeding themselves. It just becomes a this animal. Between 2003 and 2012, Rashida Samji, with the assistance of Arvind Patel, created a monster. Samji's scheme built over 200 people and companies out of almost $120 million, the largest Ponzi fraud in British Columbia's history. Victims included Samji's close friends, family, and people in the Vancouver area Ismaili community, which once held her in high esteem. Even the Aga Khan Foundation was named in court documents related to getting money back to the victims. Arvind Patel was Samji's accomplice. He helped defraud family members, including his daughter, out of $1.4 million. 
He was a financial planner at Coast Capital Savings in Surrey. He even managed to lose $350,000 of his own money. Although he was well-trained as a financial advisor with decades of experience, Patel claimed he had no knowledge that Samji was running a Ponzi scheme. And he claimed further that he drew no commissions for signing up clients. Together, nearly a hundred Coast Capital clients and staff invested almost $30 million through Patel. Five of Patel's co-workers, who were in lending or insurance positions, bought in and lost out. Remember that. Patel's co-workers invested. We'll take a closer look at Patel's story in a future episode. In September 2016, in Vancouver Provincial Court, Judge Gregory Rideout sentenced Rashida Samji to six years in a federal penitentiary on 14 counts of fraud over $5,000. Rideout said that Samji, quote, knew exactly what she was doing and went forward with eyes wide open. He asked her to rise and meet the sheriff and then Samji felt the cold snap of handcuffs on her wrist. It was a dramatic moment. Handcuffs don't become a 63-year-old woman in a designer dress. As Samji was led out of the courtroom, the silence was broken by Christine Dow calling, Bye, Rashida! Earlier, during a break in the hearing, a woman approached me to speak. I would guess she was in her late 60s or early 70s. She was quite frail and very emotional. She was one of the victims. She told me she had been Samji's best friend since childhood. They grew up together in Uganda. Can you believe that, the woman said, that someone would do that to her best friend? Her husband said they'd lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. They had also brought their daughter into the scheme. I think that bothered the woman as much as the betrayal of her best friend. I don't know why she approached me, but I suppose it was because one of the other victims told her I was writing about the case. Unfortunately, there wasn't time to step out of the courtroom and into the hallway for an interview, before the hearing resumed, and they were gone before it was over. Maybe an hour or so after getting handcuffed, the bankrupt Samji posted $100,000 bail and walked away. Global TV reporter Rumina Daya followed Samji to her car, recording a rare bit of audio with Samji on tape. Do you have anything to say to the victims? Nothing to say to anyone. How could you have nothing to say to the victims, Miss Samji? Please leave me. I've said what I've said in court. So just leave me. They want to hear from you, though. You took millions of dollars from them, and you're just walking out of jail and going home today? You have nothing to say to them? (laughs) 
Rashida Samji was born in Uganda. So was Patel. For a time, there was a significant South Asian population in Uganda. Part of a diaspora that served in various capacity, often the civil service, in British colonies around the world. When Idi Amin became Ugandan president after staging a military coup in 1972, he decided to expel the Indian and Asian communities, including members of the Aga Khan's small but wealthy Muslim Ismaili community. Idi Amin was a brutal dictator, one of the worst of the last hundred years. After relations with Prime Minister Abote soured, Amin staged a relatively bloodless coup on January 25, 1971, and took power over Uganda. Idi Amin staged his coup against Milton Abote. When Milton Abote went to attend the Commonwealth Heads of State Conference in Singapore, at first he didn't kill many Abote loyalists, but in 1972, the year after the coup, and people were literally massacred. Samji's family fled to London, England. She married, had a daughter, and studied law but never practiced. In 1978, after a divorce, she moved to Vancouver with her daughter and father. She became a notary public and later became what's known as a roving notary. She filled in for others who were on vacation or on leave. One of her clients, for a time, was Mark Anthony Group, owners of Mission Hill Winery and other brands. Samji said she was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2002, and claims that while in hospital, she herself was defrauded over the phone by a woman in London. It was a real estate scam in which she lost $400,000, Samji told investigators. Desperate to cover the loss, she said she and a colleague concocted a scheme. Investors would receive a guaranteed high-interest payment within six months of buying into a completely fictitious Mark Anthony wine import expansion. The investor's principal would be held completely safe in Samji's notary trust account. Sometime after, Samji heard that the wife of her old friend, Arvind Patel, was dying of cancer. He was on leave from Coast Capital to care for his wife. According to Patel, Samji proposed a partnership. Now note that cancer reference. It will come up again and again in our story, both as a disease that affected people and perhaps even helped to facilitate the scam, and as a metaphor for how the fallout of the scam metastasizes in the wider community. Back at Coast Capital during the 2008 financial meltdown, Patel was advising people like Dave, Christine, and Lorne that rather than waste their time on low-interest GICs and mutual funds, they should put their money into the wine investment. 
This investment performed so well, Patel advised, that they should invest all of their pension money. Better yet, take out a line of credit against the value of their home, invest that, and just live off the interest. It paid off. For a while. It certainly worked for Samji, who ended up owning a $2.5 million penthouse in one of Vancouver's most elite condo buildings. She invested in many other real estate ventures. She became known for her expensive clothes and jewelry and vacation cruises. She was the toast of philanthropic circles until her fantastic crash. Christine Dow, for whom the Samji scheme entwined with a heartbreaking series of personal tragedies in the years since the scam was exposed, is also at this meeting. The only silver lining for Christine has been meeting the others in the room. People she didn't know previously, but became close friends with during the devolving shitshow that followed. They're all part of a group of 90 Coast Capital clients that Lorne Mallon banded together to file lawsuits. When we first met, Christine told us that she didn't know how she would have survived without this group. The most common reaction that she got from people who have not been victims of fraud is, how could you be so stupid? How could you not know that the scheme was too good to be true. Christine believes that the question of gullibility is just a disguise for an assumption that she and her friends were just plain greedy. In either case, her reaction to the question was an overwhelming feeling of shame. Too good to be true? That's what victims are often told in hindsight. But some experts disagree. I've always pushed back at that uh, line of thought um, that investment schemes, if they offer more than the going rate, uh, that they are necessarily fraudulent. This is David Baines, the resident expert on fraud in this town. For 20 years, Baines' column in the Vancouver Sun was a must-read in the investment community. I got to know him when I worked at the paper in the 1990s and early aughts. He retired two years ago, but I caught up with him in November 2017 at his home in Richmond. Anybody who's lived in Vancouver couldn't see the extent to which real estate has appreciated, uh, certainly by double digits year after year. And we have periods in the cycle when gold does the same thing, oil does the same thing. So to get returns of 20, 25% are, is not that unusual. And um, the thing is, is that uh, Promoters or, or, or scurrilous individuals will piggyback on that phenomenon to say that their deal, too, can get these kinds of returns. Uh, so it sort of flows uh, somewhat uh, naturally from a phenomenon that we see every day. In February 2017, a Surrey Provincial Court judge was convinced by the defense argument that Arvind Patel 
had no knowledge that he was selling a fraud. He was handed a three-year suspended sentence for a few securities violations. There were no reporters there, just a dozen or so people, including Kathleen and me, who were sitting behind Dave and Christine. Dave couldn't handle listening to the judgment. He got up and walked out. I caught up with him in the hall and we talked for a while, but he refused to respond to the sentencing on tape. It did seem incredible to me that Patel, someone with such experience and training as an investment advisor, could possibly not know he was partner to Samji's scam. But then again, you could say the same thing for hundreds of investment professionals involved with Bernie Madoff. This is an Expo Line train to King George. Passengers board Sapperton, Braid, Lougheed, and Production Way board this train and change trains. Dave and his wife, Sane, own the home that we are meeting in. She's a former flight attendant who now works with Aeroplan, and he's a retired IT professional. The house is a long 70s-era rancher on a winding road in the Newton area of Surrey, B.C. Looking out from the front step, you see verdant open fields to the south. If you crane your neck around the new McMansions blocking the view, the U.S. border is just beyond the mist. Dave and Sine came pretty close to losing the house, as well as their now-vanished pensions. And they still owe a lot of money on a line of credit arranged by Coast Capital, where they are long-time members. I'm surprised that Dave has some sympathy for Arvin Patel. He's also largely disinterested in Samji. She's just a psychopath, he told me when I first met him. Samji was mental. You know, there's something, you know, there, there was something, you, you can't deal with a, you can't right. deal with a person like that, so. I've heard the same line echoed by multiple people involved in the case. I, I wrote down on what Lauren's saying, though, I, I, when you asked, you know, what would you say to Sam? I said, no point. What would you say to Arvin? No point. Mm. Also in the room are Ed and Mohini Sadu. They were clients of Arvind Patel's for over 15 years. They lost hundreds of thousands of dollars. I think I'm bitter on Coast Capital. We, our group Coast Capital, we were, all of us, we were member, members. The way I look at it, and it is true, that who is Coast Capital? We members are the Coast Capital. Right. It's us. Yes, we Why? We, we have to fight. We paid for their lawyer. <laughs> we are paid. Yeah. And at the end of the day, they are covered with the, with the insurance. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. At the end of the day, their premium goes up. Who is paying the premium? I'm still the member because right. there's some part still left to be dealt with. Mm -hmm. yes. We coast. And I, can't, I just can't just close my account and go to somebody else. We know that people get lured into Ponzi schemes because they trust someone who's part of their community, someone like Arvind Patel. But Ponzi schemes also happen because somebody in a position of power isn't paying attention or is looking the other way. The banks play a large part in this story. Not only Coast Capital, 
but TD Canada Trust and Royal Bank of Canada as well. All three paid settlement agreements rather than getting into a larger court battle. We'll look at what that all means in a later episode. From real estate scams to money laundering at a local casino, to connections to offshore tax havens, to Ponzi schemes, it seems fraud is one of Vancouver's biggest industries. Why is Vancouver so fraud-prone, I asked David Baines. Yeah, I've been asked that question frequently. Uh, what is it about Vancouver? Because it certainly has a reputation as a... As, and in fact, Forbes one time dubbed it the scam capital of the world. And uh, I think, in fact, there is a very uh, vibrant... <laughs> there, there, there is an underbelly in uh, Vancouver... He argues it's part of the city's cultural history. I think there's several reasons for that. One is that historically Vancouver was a speculative mining center and a stock exchange grew up around that. And uh, an infrastructure grew up around it. Uh, An infrastructure of facilitators, lawyers, accountants, geologists, brokers, and so on. And... um, this is what we came to term an infrastructure of chicanery. Okay. And it's still, it's still ingrained in Vancouver. So the culture of a place and the mood of the markets help set the context for fraud. In the Samji and Patel scam, the 2008 financial meltdown had given retirees the jitters, and the pair used that to their advantage. The advantage was quite the opposite for the Calgary duo Milo Brost and Gary Sorensen, who were busted in 2007. That con was fueled by the oil boom and Alberta's political culture, says Crown Prosecutor Brian Holtby. You had a lot of people who... uh as they say, were kind of anti-government, anti-taxes. They felt that too much of their money was going to taxes. I think another factor at the time was Alberta's economy was doing really well. So people in the oil business were getting bonuses and that type of thing. So they had a little extra money to invest that they, they wouldn't have now. Holtby's Calgary office is surrounded by oil company and bank logos glowing atop various towers. He won impressive 12-year sentences for the pair who ripped off over 800 people for somewhere between 120 and 170 million. It's fuzzy. It was a Ponzi scheme hyped as a gold prospecting venture. And also housing prices were going up, and some, some people used the equity in their house. So it was a time when uh, cash was available to people, either from their work, or equity in their houses. And I would say most people would be mid to upper income, most of the investors. Vancouver lawyer Ron Usher looks at Ponzi schemes from a psychological perspective. At one point I did professional hypnosis, and um, blessedly a long time ago, you know, you got to make money as a psychology student. Okay. (laughs) And it was actually shocking to me how... We all live in some sort of trance. 
And it's effective, right? Because there's mm-hmm. too much attention. Well, you go crazy if you attend to everything, right? right. And yeah. so we all we all apply a very selective filter. And when we're our intentions, hypnosis is, um, you know, works by the focusing of attention. And so when I'm under the spell of a master hustler like Rashida and thing, you you literally are hypnotized. Okay. Wow. You, you let go of your cognitive stuff. Usher, who's legal counsel to the Notaries Society, to which Samji once belonged, says we're all vulnerable. And it's all, we all get very, um, so I, 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 it, it, people are often, oh, these people must be foolish or must be. I said, no, no, just a minute. Sure. You didn't fall under the spell. You weren't in the trance. And don't think you're not vulnerable to the trance. And we like it, you know, when we're at a, when it's feel good, you know, at, at the church or at a concert. We love getting in the trance, right? It's kind of fun, sure, to be in the trance. When yeah. good good theater entrances, we we, we we think it's real, mm-hmm. right? We 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 put a, suspend our disbelief, and, and a, a great piece of art does that, whether it's theater or music or whatever. So if you think of these things as rem- Perverse art and theater, skillfully done. Rashida Samji's Ponzi scheme was certainly perverse and dramatic. Skillfully done? Well, maybe for a few years. In episode two, we'll look at Samji's side of the story, where she claims she was the ultimate victim and hear others' points of view as well. Is she a victim, or a psychopath, a sociopath, or just a little bit more deluded than most of us? Is it possible to be all of the above? We certainly do know she's a serial liar. Will Samji ever do time in jail? I'm Tim Carlson, and this is Victim Impact. Have you or someone you love been ripped off for all your worth by someone you trusted? Did you lose your home, a relationship, trust in everything and everyone? You're certainly not alone. Victim Impact is for you and you can be part of it. If you like what you hear, we want you to join us. Get in touch, share your story, blow the whistle. You can share your story anonymously, on tape, share documents. It's your choice. Let's start a conversation. You can email us at info at conspiracy.ca. Also, if you want to support the project, you can donate online at conspiracy.ca. Victim Impact is researched and written by myself, Tim Carlson with additional research by assistant Gavin Chima and Kathleen Flaherty. Kathleen is also co-producer and editor. 
Co-producer David Masiha composed the original music and engineered the recording. We'll be uploading a new episode each month leading up to the production of the stage play, Victim Impact, at the Colch in Vancouver in June. Go to conspiracy.ca for more information.